0: This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by the Truce podcast. Truce dives deep inside church history and culture to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Download Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcasts.com. That's T-R-U-C-E podcast.com.
1: Today is May 15th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss the major cultural events. This week on the show, we will be talking about the life and work of Jean Vanier. And if you don't know who he is, you're in for a treat. My name is Morgan Lee. I'm an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I am joined by my co-host, Mark Alley. Hey, Mark.
2: Hey, how are you?
1: Mark, I think you rode your bike into work today.
2: Yep. Spring has finally begun. May 15th, and we finally had a decent day. So That's a little exaggerated. So I got all my bike commuting gear in, in working order, so I'll probably be commuting by bike most days till the late fall.
1: Yeah, and it's great, right? It is great. Well, who is joining us today?
2: Joining us today is Michael Higgins. Michael Higgins is Distinguished Professor of Catholic Thought at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, and also, more to the point, author of Jean Vanier, Logician of the Heart, a biography of the well-known Catholic philosopher and activist that has been a deep influence a lot of people, among others, uh, Henry Nouwen. Uh, Michael Higgins has also written a, a biography of Henry Nouwen, and he'll come up in our conversation today as well. Welcome, Michael.
3: Uh, Well, thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: We're really glad to have you here, Michael, as well. And I'm just going to kind of give people a little bit of an overview of Jean Vanier, but I'm really excited for you to tell us way more about him over the course of this show. Last week, the Canadian Catholic philosopher, activist, leader Jean Vanier died at the age of 90. A prolific author, Vanier was also the founder of L'Arche, an international network of communities for people with and without intellectual and developmental disabilities. As Bethany McKinney-Fox wrote for CT last week, um, while many ministries involving people with intellectual disabilities began with a clear separation between those being helped and those doing the helping, slowly the paradigm has shifted towards Vanier's approach at L'Arche, where all are called to share their gifts as members of one body of Christ, doing the work of the gospel together. In addition for transforming how the church thought about and acted towards people with intellectual disabilities, Vanier was also very influential on the life and theology of Henry Nouwen, who people may be deeply familiar with as well. So this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to learn more about the life of Jean Vanier, what his writings grappled with, and what evangelicals have to particularly learn from this deeply Catholic intellect and practitioner. So, Mark, I would love to just get kind of a gut check from you of when you saw the news that um, Vanier had passed, what kind of went through your head?
2: Well, to be, uh, to be honest, I, I knew the name and I knew what he stood for, but I w- to be frank, I was, I was even unsure if he was still alive or not. So that's how unfamiliar I was with him. And my only image of him is a caricature of a, uh, of a wise man who spends a lot of time with people with intellectual disabilities. It's almost a sentimental view, but then as we, I uh, started looking into it as a result of that news story, I realized he was uh, he wasn't a mere sentimentalist. He was a Catholic philosopher, and uh, had a very interesting life. And I, at that point, I said, uh, as I said to you, I, I just want to know more about this person rather than this caricature we get, which is not untrue, but it's just it's just so incomplete.
1: Absolutely. I first heard of Vanier in college when we were reading some stuff by Henry Nowen, who writes about this his time at l'Arche a, a decent amount, and I was really intrigued by the ways that Vanier is obviously articulating for people of the mind, I guess you know that love to talk about ideas all the time, but he's also deeply living it out as well, and that Kind of tension that I see in lots of people between almost picking one or the other sometimes feels much more um, unified in him. And I too don't know much about his life or what kind of prompted him to end up where he did. But I'm really glad that we're going to be learning so much more about him today.
2: Yeah. And that's why I told you before, before we started recording, I'm a little nervous about doing this podcast because I have a feeling it might be life challenging.
1: <laughs> life challenging and changing. Yeah. All right. Well, Michael, Since both Mark and I have a long ways to go in terms of understanding and knowing a decent amount about Vanier, I'm wondering if we could start with talking about his religious background.
3: Well, Jean Vanier comes from a quite distinguished um, family in Canada. His father and mother were the vice-regal couple. Georges Vanier, his father, was a very accomplished um, soldier and diplomat and had uh, become a uh, governor general of Canada. That means um, the representative of Her Majesty the Queen. Canada is a constitutional monarchy, unlike the United States, which, of course, is a republic. So the uh, representative of the Queen in Canada, the governor general, exercises a titular or symbolic role, but a very, very important one. And when uh, Van, Georges Vanier received this appointment, one of the th- things he did at Rideau Hall, which is the residence, official residence of the vice couple, is he had a chapel built where he attended daily Mass and where he prayed before the Blessed Sacrament. This is uh, Jean Vanier's father. And I tell you this because it's very important to understand his background. His mother, Pauline, was a woman of capacious spirituality. Her mother... Was uh, had as her spiritual director a Jesuit priest who was also the spiritual director of St. Therese de Lisieux, one of the great Catholic saints of the last century. So they, the family has kind of Sataniness as a pedigree. It's part of their DNA, it seems. <laughs> and um, right from the beginning, he, he lived in a world which took his religion, his faith, very seriously and would meet... Um, at various salons in France, where he would meet people like Jacques Maletain, these great French intellectuals. But also, um, he, he und- understood fairly early on the high importance that was attached to human compassion. His mother took him to meet uh, in Paris to meet people who had just come out of the concentration camps at uh, Dachau, Auschwitz, Birkenau, and the other camps. And so he had a very early exposure to the capacity of human suffering, and to the importance of empathy. He went on to do a doctorate at the Institut de Calique in Paris on Aristotle, uh, quite an impressive work, and uh, began his career, actually, as a university professor in Toronto at St. Michael's College, where he taught ethics. But very early on, he, he felt called to do other things, and he explored them in terms of his religious life. He had always been and remained intensely religious all his life crystal-centric, had a very important relationship with Jesus. This was critical to his spirituality. And he had uh, given up also a career in the the Royal Canadian Navy. I mean, he was an officer in the Navy, uh, an intellectual, a professor, uh, the son of a very distinguished family. And he ends up in the 1960s, early 1960s, electing to spend his time with, and this would define the rest of his life, uh, working with people with profound um, intellectual and emotional disabilities.
2: How old, how old was he when he made that move?
3: He must have been around 30, early 30s. Okay. Um, he ha- he um, read The Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton, who was also, as you know, deeply influential in the life of Henry Nouwen. And he read him... Um, I think uh when he was on board a ship near the harbor in Havana and that seemed to have had quite a an an impact on him in helping him make a decision about which trajectory to follow uh peacemaking or um, remaining in the, in the navy and he he chose to ta- take the peacemaking route.
1: So what was the first step that he took after he read that book?
3: Well, I, I think it just—I'm not sure that he took some massive leap. I think it just helped to consolidate uh, his intuition that perhaps he was being called to the religious life. Certainly, he thought seriously of becoming a monk at one point. His brother um, became a monk, a very famous monk, Trappist monk in Oka in Quebec. His name was Father Benedict. He died, actually, just a couple of years ago. Uh, He thought of the priesthood, but uh, he he decided, really, that he was going to remain a layman and find his way, find his particular ministry of of service. And he did. I mean, he not only found it in a very important way, he created an international movement.
1: What were the origins of this particular idea to start a community?
3: Well, he had lived in community. He had lived in L'Oviv in France. Um, he had worked with pertot Thomas-Philippe uh, in something called Val-Fleury. Um He had um, the experience of meeting these uh, gentlemen in the uh, asylum and decided that, you know, this was uh, an unbelievable way to treat people. And that he was going to um, found a home and he was going to live with them. Now, I don't think he had a particular blueprint or a template that said, you know, here's what I'm going to do, and eventually there'll be international movement over this. I think what he did when he established uh, Larsh, from the, uh, in English, of course, it's the Ark, he, he, what he was doing was establishing a living quarters where he was going to live with them. He wasn't going to rule over them, he wasn't going to be their supervisor, he wasn't going to be their. Even their spiritual director, he was going to be their companion, and that's very important to understand in the way that uh, Vanier articulated the large vision, as you uh, indicated earlier on, that he, it wasn't really caring for people with uh, mental and emotional disabilities. It was a matter of living with them, being part of their community, and having them help to shape your life and helping you better understand your humanity.
2: Is that uh, I, I read briefly that uh, he kind of had a crisis moment after starting, Larch.
3: Well, I, I'm not sure it was, a, it was a crisis. I mean, there were there were, you know, he had a his relationship with the Dominican Father uh, Thomas Philippe was a very important one. It would eventually become a rather troubled one. But at the beginning, it was very it was certainly a very important one. In the in the real world, of course, you have to be pragmatic about some of these things. Where you're going to get the funding. Would psychiatrists make the important referrals? What levels of competence does he have to be able to exercise questions? I would, I suspect around, you know, his his own self-worth, um, his own capacity to be able to be an, an agency of God's mercy, and yet at the same time learn so deeply from them. I am not Sure, there was a particular crisis. I'm not sure what you were alluding to mark um uh, there were certainly ups and downs in his life i don't, i don 't know if it was a crisis, but i mean he has he, he has to navigate a way forward of course um and he does and and uh, you have the they 're called the foyer these individual houses and uh, the, the trolley broil now you know where he died, which was the foundation of the movement has several houses of foyer it 's quite a large uh, expansive land. But now there are something like, uh, I don't know, about 154 uh, large homes throughout the whole world and in 30-some countries. And um, they they would change, of course, to, uh, in, in part depending upon the local, social, political, and religious climate, depending on the jurisdiction which they find themselves. But by, by the mid-1970s, so certainly by the late 1970s, He's withdrawing further and further from any kind of oversight in terms of uh, actual administration. He realized that his special gift, I think, was to write, uh, to travel extensively and helping with the emerging homes, to be present to people. This was very important for Jean, to to be present. It was not a matter of, you know, uh, some grand architectural vision, and then he withdraws from it. He he immersed himself completely and lived in community, he lived with the people he loved and, and the people who loved him. So it wasn't a matter of being head office and then sending out missives and uh, manifestos and everything else and exhortations. It was a matter of actually living the mission of L'Arche.
2: Okay. Yeah, I think the word crisis was a little too strong. Uh, I was just under the impression that when he started, he, after living that with these people for a year or so, he realized he had to re reoriented how he was thinking about that. And I,
3: I said, oh, well, he certainly did. Yes, yeah. he certainly did. And certainly one of the three, there were two that were very, that he could work with, but there was one who was very seriously damaged. And I think he realized that, that it, it was very difficult for him to be able to actually, um, manage those difficult waters. And so at the beginning, there were, there were quite, um, there were hurdles, let's put it that way. There were hurdles simply because, of course, he's doing something entirely different. Think about this now. You know, he's, he's an academician. Uh, he's uh, had a very privileged life. He's a former Navy officer. Um, he comes from a vice regal family. Uh, he has all the uh, opportunities that very few would have in their lives. And he chooses to live with men who would never cross his 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 life, I mean, he would never meet such people, and he meets them, and they're in an entirely different space than he is, and he befriends them, and he comes to love them very quickly, and then he begins to realize uh, that he needs them as much, if not more, than they need him. So he there's a kind of Copernican revolution in the way he thinks.
2: I do think it's uh, not unusual in the history of, uh, certainly, Catholic saints that they often come from families or social situations of some privilege. I mean, uh, Martin of Tours was a military officer. Francis came from a wealthy family, uh, and so forth. So this it, it is interesting that so many of them came out of that, were raised in a privileged environment, and yet nonetheless
3: chose to serve in some radical ways. Yeah, it does underscore the... the uh as you say, the radical nature of their decision. I mean, their discipleship, um, it takes them in a very different direction from their privileged and comfortable and uh, high-level reputational background that they've inherited. So it, it makes that change, even in the direction of their lives, even um, uh, a greater rupture than would, say, be the case for uh, someone who's, who's not in the higher echelons of society.
1: I'm actually really curious about one logistical question, which is where was L'Arche getting its money from in the early days?
3: I don't know. Well, there may have been some funding coming from the state. I mean, um, uh, France, the French government operates a little differently than the American government in providing support for various uh, health and dependency services. So perhaps there was some money coming from the psychiatric hospital f- uh, from which the uh, the early core community had been discharged from, Um, there could have been uh, resources coming from various religious orders and um, certainly various uh, churches in France that would have been motivated by this uh, ministry or inspired by this ministry. But I I can't imagine that it would have been uh, very great. Um, The homes themselves become fairly self-sufficient in in a fairly quick, quick period of time. Uh, it's not that, they're, that people aren't doing anything. I mean, they're they're involved in agriculture. Some of them are involved in pottery. Some of them are involved in, in, in Toronto. In fact, they work in a woodery. They have their own woodery. So there, there, there are various ways in which um, uh, income for support could be supplemented. But you got to remember, they're not paying them um, wages in the same way that we would talk about in the professional world. Uh, these people are living a life of mission. So... They the money they would have would be very little, and they would accept that, and they would live in the home. These are the assistants I'm speaking about. They would live in the home, and they would work very closely with the core community, and uh, I don't think salaries and benefits would be a driving principle in their lives.
1: So when Vanier began to write, I'm curious about the nature of the the first couple works that he put forth and what type of ideas and arguments he was making.
3: It's not particularly complicated because although he was prolific, as you indicated, he wrote a great number of books throughout his life. The themes that constitute those books, uh, peace, peacemaking, community, community building, communion, um, are pretty consistent. And they uh, uh, undergo various kind of elaborations, if you like, various more sophisticated iterations, but they are fundamentally the same themes built on the radical simplicity of the gospel that calls for us to live lives for others, and as a consequence, that reciprocity allows us to more deeply engage our own humanity. That when we are working with the disadvantaged um, and the disabled, they allow us to face our own vulnerability. In other words, we need them more than they need us. And uh, the important development in that, again, it's kind of a topsy-turvy world, but it's the world of Francis of Assisi, it's the world of Jesus of Nazareth, that, um, that you begin to see the, the wisdom of the broken, the wisdom of the discarded, and you begin to realize how important it is to, to, to be with them, because they, they give you an unconditional love. They allow you to more deeply understand uh, your own humanity. So um, uh, all his life, um, really, he he wrote books that underscored that particular message. And he went back to it again and again. It was the cantus firmus. It was the major theme that ran through his entire uh, opus, from the early books right up to the later books.
1: Which of these ideas would you say was really well-received, and which of these ideas would you say that people kind of criticized or pushed back upon?
3: Well, I don't know anyone who did the latter. I'm not familiar with anyone who's ever um, critiqued him negatively. I certainly know that Stanley Harawas um, engaged in a public debate with him in a wonderful book around uh, peacemaking and nonviolence and pacifism. Um, but I don't, I don't know that that was uh, an effort to demolish his argument. Um, in terms of building up community, I think um, for many people his approach was certainly different from what, from their own approach, with which they were more familiar. So it could have, it, well, you know, was disruptive, but I'm not sure that he ever particularly critiqued it. He lived what, what, what he preached, and so he became, in a sense, the message. That's one of the reasons why so many people are drawn to him. They're drawn to him because of the, his serenity because of his interiority, because he, he lived what he preached. And he was a man who suffused joy. Joy emanated from him. Joy defined him. Um, he, he loved being with people. And he didn't love being pe- pe- with people because he was particularly sociable. He loved being with people because they helped him to, to, to realize his own humanity. They, they helped to heal his wounds. They helped him to accept his vulnerability. So I, uh, I think that in a, uh, such an important way, uh, Jean's message is communicated by his presence, by the presence in the community, by the presence when he gave public lectures, gave retreats, did things like this. People were profoundly moved when they were in his presence.
0: This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? churchlawandtax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join churchlawandtax.com today. Uh,
2: I can imagine a criticism that's been set against Mother Teresa, for example, that all well and good that she helps dying people to die well in Calcutta, but why Why isn't she uh, demanding, uh, you know, marching on the parliament and demanding changes in society so that these uh, social ills can be changed? I can imagine Vanier's emphasis on one-on-one personal relationship could be criticized in a like manner, uh, but you haven't heard that at all.
3: No, because there was nothing particularly ideological about him. Um, he decided that he, from the very beginning, he wasn't going to be engaged in any kind of political platform, that he wasn't aligned with any particular movement, that um, what he was really about was a personal undertaking to understand and to build community, communion, really, with those that were disabled and disadvantaged and to live with them. Now, I don't know um, what one would do in a case like that by saying, well, that's really kind of insufficient because you're not changing the world. Well, it was changing the world. Nobody was looking after the the mentally challenged and deficient in the same way he was. He was building community. So he wasn't critiquing the mental health system. He was offering an alternative in terms of, of living with and allowing people in the community to not only be enriched and valued because they were loved, but also to communicate their own unconditional love to their caregivers. In fact, caregiver was a term that he didn't uh, approve at all. I mean, they were assistants. They were all part of a family. Each large home was a family. It wasn't a hierarchy. They weren't the professionals and then the others. If there were issues around psychiatric care, clinical matters, or matters around um, uh, food or hydration or things that have a specific physiological uh, genesis. I mean, he worked with physicians and psychiatrists. I mean, he, they, they didn't attempt to offer some kind of alternative medicine. They, they were offering an alternative way of living community. And, and one of the reasons why they flourished everywhere, from Ukraine to Honduras to Africa to Bangladesh, they're all over the place. Uh, And is that because the governments look at them and say, oh, here's somebody doing some good work, but they might have some kind of hidden agenda that they're really proto-capitalists or proto-socialists? No. I mean, uh, he was was a man who who wanted to live the gospel intensely to discover Jesus in the other, and so that took a concrete direction. It never took an ideological direction.
1: I'm wondering if you can talk about moments of pain or personal suffering um, that Vanier experienced in the course of his life?
3: Well, he doesn't talk very much about it, Morgan, really. Um, uh, if you and I, This has been a critique that I have had. I've written about him, uh, his biography, but I've also written about him in the Literary Review of Canada, in Commonweal Magazine in New York and whatnot, and have reviewed some of his publications, particularly an important volume, his Letters. And I remember uh, a fairly sharp critique, which uh, Sean never disputed, where I I said that they don't reveal anything, that they're now self-disclosing. And um, that's true. When I asked him at one—when I told him at one point that I had been commissioned to write a biography of him—now there have been many biographies that have been written of him, but mine was the the most recent at the time, in English anyway— and uh, he was largely indifferent to it. He didn't put any hurdles in the way, but he didn't encourage it. Uh, he, he, he felt, Michael, I'm not important. Write a biography about the movement, write about the movement. And I said, well, the publisher uh, is not, you know, is interested in the movement, but is primarily interested in you. But he, he's not interested in him. So as a consequence, when it came to private matters, very deeply private matters of the heart, his publications give very little evidence of uh, disclosing, self-disclosure.
2: That is so countercultural. I mean, I'm just...
3: It is, isn't it? And I think part of the reason, Mark, is because he was very fearful of celebritization. It's a big thing, particularly in the United States, where we become obsessed with celebrities. And um, uh, they become iconic for us. God knows, for any number of different reasons. And he saw that as the kiss of death. Uh, To be turned into a celebrity is to have the importance shifted from what you're doing to who you are in the eyes of your devotees or votaries or of the industry or of marketing or advertising or whatever as you push the product, and the product could be yourself. He had to resist that and did very successfully by just simply saying, you know, to put it in the vernacular, it's not about me.
2: And it's none of your business. (laughs)
3: Yeah, well, that's right. It's not. It's not about me. It's about uh, making community, and so I don't want to talk about myself. And and he doesn't. So it, it does make it a little difficult for the biographers because I mean we have to. We 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 have the you know the public narrative, and we have all that kind of stuff, but. As far as I know, and I may be wrong, and now that he's deceased and, you know, there may be an embargo for 25 or 50 years on private journals, I don't even know if he kept private journals, and, and there in those private journals, as in the case of Thomas Merton, of course, we had the restricted journals were published 25 years after his life, and we discovered all kinds of things we didn't know before. It is always possible that he may, that, you know, he kept private journals, they are embargoed for a period of time, and then we'll find out stuff that we didn't know before. My sense was that he lived a, a, a life of startling simplicity, by which I mean that he avoided the complexities of intrigue and uh, uh, maneuvering and networking and plotting and all that kind of stuff. So, he, you know, he, he would meet with dignitaries from all over the world, or they would seek him out. He won the Templeton Award. He won the highest award he could win in France. He was, uh, the Queen of England was very fond of him. I mean, there was, uh, the pope, he was a friend of Pope's. Mother Teresa was his friend, and they were all right, right across the theological and political spectrum. And so people people loved him. They loved him for being the authentic human being that he was. But he never makes a lot of this. Like, he doesn't go back and say, well, I, you know, uh, when I met um, Her Britannic Majesty, this is what we talked about, or I had, you know, dinner with the Pope, and uh, these are the kinds of things that unfolded. No, he doesn't do any of that. Because that's to, that's just a shift of focus to him, right? And, and, and he's he is egoless. I mean, I've never, I have written several biographies. I've never written a biography of someone who is so utterly without ego than Jean Benier. Huh, how about that? We all have egos, and we're all quite taken with ourselves and frightened of our weakness, of course, and celebratory about our achievements. And you come across somebody who is utterly indifferent to either <laughs> and happens to be a major name. Uh, you think, okay, how, how do how, how do I deal with this? I mean, he was very fearful being lionized. He he disliked that intensely. That people, you know, adored what he was doing and whatnot. He and he would say that he said, "Never, no, I'm, not about me. If you like what I'm doing, do what I'm doing." That was his point.
2: That's a bracing uh, way of thinking about that. We do live in a culture that almost demands that public figures, pastors, writers. Reveal something personal of themselves before they will start to trust him or her. Uh, That's I be- right. I've been requested in many books I've written that I don't have enough personal illustrations and the the, the reader wants to get to know me. Uh, and I've been deeply suspicious of that, but I've bent the knee to the publisher who I think knows better. But this is quite a counterexample that was going to give me a lot of room a lot of uh, space for thought. I think it's a really
3: powerful. No, your, your point is, you're, yeah, your point is very well taken. People do do like the personal disclosure. They do feel that in that, in a way, they have a handle on you, and that they can, you know, they've you've confided in them and whatnot. And that's what they're interested. They're interested in the in the personal voice, the personal crises, the personal scandals, the personal insights. But if you're somebody like uh, Jean Bagnier... You're shifting the focus away from that, and you're shifting the focus very specifically to the nature of your ministry and his in his ministry was to be to emulate jesus and and Jesus emptied himself for vanier then your your life is a life of self donation it's not a life of self revelation, and that, as you say, is very countercultural
1: The thing that I do find interesting though, is because his praxis so much match the stuff that he was writing about and preaching it's not like we don't know what he did per se it's just that he did not kind of lay naked all of his thoughts or details about his personal life or um, kind of kind of letting people in that may not have like necessarily earned it
3: well, and you know, you're right, and 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 in a way, of course, this might be a bit of a reaction to the spotlight he was born in, right? I mean, if your father is the governor general and a very distinguished man, and your mother is is rather famous in her own right, you 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 have the famous father syndrome. How am I how am I going to deal with this? I mean, I've got you know, I've got my parents are, in fact, in in Canada. There was at one point the cause for the canonization of the making uh, a, a saint of uh, making both his parents a saint. So I mean they they are kind of pretty heavy figures <laughs> of the landscape, and um, you, you you look at this and you say, okay, now how am I going to cope with that? Well, he he copes with it quite simply by emulating his father's humility, his father and his mother's capacity for love. That's what he he emulates. He emulates their positive qualities. And and moves himself further and further out of the spotlight. Now, because of the work that he does is so extraordinary, the spotlight follows him. So now he's got to find a way. How do how do how do I work with the spotlight? Because I need, of course, you know, to um, for my ministry to flourish. I need I need people to know what I'm doing. I'm not going to set up these homes in Africa and Asia and South America and Canada, and United States, and the States. I mean, if I, I, there there's something here. There's a momentum here that's of the spirit. At the same time, I can't make it about me. So it's a constant tension or struggle in his, in his life. But I, I suspect it's more our struggle than it is his, because certainly on the occasions when I met with him, which, which weren't many, but they were all really quite meaningful, he exuded serenity. Um, he just simply was, he would answer questions. But they wouldn't be questions about himself. That they were questions specifically focused on him. He would redirect the question to talk about the movement or the people or an event, but not about him.
2: Did uh, this is just in a personal aside I found very meaningful the last year or so. The reading the litany of humility, which includes lines like "From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus." The desire of being exalted. From the desire of being honored from the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me Jesus. Was that something, a part of his spiritual life,
3: that particular litany? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, he was influenced by, by several different, really quite traditional Catholic uh, sources, the Carmelite mystics, obviously, because of the uh, Sant'Harris de Lisieux, But also, you know, um, the work that was done by Dorothy Day, the work that was done, the contemplative work of uh, Thomas Merton was very important for him. He was aware of the other what are called ecclesial movements, in, in Europe particular, Chiara Lubisch with her Vocalare, um, uh, the movement with Andrea Riccardi called Sanigidio. He was particularly fond of because of the work they were doing with international peacemaking. So, I mean, he, he was fed by several sources, and he was open to uh, ecumenical and, indeed, to interfaith. Uh, I mean, the, the head of the large community in France now is Jewish. Uh, the head of the community in Bangladesh, is Muslim. So, I mean, it's not that it's a narrowly Catholic uh, operation. He understood that the ministry he was doing was going to be uh, extraterritorial when it came to to religion. But it's motivated and sustained by a profound and deep religious faith. And that religious faith for him, in the end, was defined by his relationship with Jesus as mediated by his understanding of, of Catholic tradition and Catholic spirituality. So he's a deeply Catholic thinker. However, he's Catholic with a lowercase c, by which I mean he was universal in his appeal. I mean, I've I've been just stunned by the reaction of political, social figures, secularists, um, religious people, non-religious people, anti-religious people, all uh, speaking so highly of his fundamental humanitarianism, and uh, at a time... Of greater polarization and uh, warmongering, um, saber rattling at least, a disturbing time in many ways, and with a false sense of communion because social media hasn't given people a greater sense of community, even if anything, is undermined it. Um, the need for uh, Jean Vanier is never more uh, urgent. But the good news is we have is. We have his videos, we have his audio tapes, we have uh, none of these, by the way, were, were particularly done for uh, uh, merchandising reasons. People just recorded them, and of course his numerous books, and the witness of countless thousands who, who were touched directly, having met him, maybe even hundreds of thousands, near, when you think of the 90 years of his life, 50 of, of years at least of that in, in active ministry with L'Arche.
1: Am I to understand, then, that he never got married or had children?
3: Oh, no. No, he was a celibate. Okay. And that was deliberate. That was deliberate.
1: Say more about that?
3: Well, I think he made the decision that the kind of calling he was going to live was a calling to be so uni-focused, so... um, uh, uh, disruptive in many ways, because, I mean, he's going to be, he would, he would be traveling, he would be living in community. I mean, could you could you imagine the demands this would make on normal family life would be really quite considerable? So my sense is that he understood that uh, that his life would be as life as a celibate, which is not surprising in his family. I mean, as I said, one of his brothers was a monk, and his sister, uh, Dr. Therese, um, Vanier, who died, uh, again, just about a year, year and a half ago at most, um, and who was, like him, 90 uh, or maybe 91, she um, was a hematologist by training. She was a blood specialist, but she founded the large Home in uh, London, and she was the co-founder with uh, Dame Cicely Saunders of the Hospice Movement. So, I mean, this is quite an extraordinary family, and they were celibates as well.
1: That's super interesting just in terms of the ways that he ended up talking about community and loneliness as well and wrestling with those things.
3: Well, he wrote a great deal about community, and um, again, it's not particularly complex. It comes down to the fundamental notion that he has that community enriches our humanity, that we don't live in isolation, that we're all going to be to some degree in our lives lonely. And we will face death with some anguish because we are lonely. But at the same time, the antidote to that loneliness cannot be found in in achievement, uh, power, riches, whatever. But actually in living in community with others, living with their frailties and living with our own. Allowing them to speak truthfully, recognizing the beauty of their lives. Now this sounds also very idealistic and in some way it is, but he lived it. I mean, this wasn't just simply uh a you know, a manifesto or some kind of a primer to a right living. Uh this is how he lived his life. He saw the beauty in other people's lives. He saw the truth in their lives, and he was not indifferent to their suffering. He understood uh how suffering can define us. He also understood that suffering helped to heal us in many in many regards. suffering could actually be a blessing because it could shatter the uh, illusions we have about ourselves, so for him, Vanier, and I think this is the mystical side of him, as you look at his life and his ministry over the years, you see him you know discarding ever more and more of the things that you would think be att- would be attractive in old age, you know, that we'd have more time just to be ourselves, that we would have certain comforts, that we would have people looking after us, and whatnot. That's not how he lived. Yeah, I mean, he, he He lived within community. He lived as part of community, not above it, not under it, and not outside it.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about Henry Nowen and how Henry Nowen's life intersected with Jean Vanier's? Uh,
3: Vanier seems to have ascertained um, from a retreat, I think both of them were at in Chicago at the time, uh, that there was something troubling Henry. And there was. Henry was not a happy camper at Harvard. Things were coming to a head, and uh, this was a special gift or charism that that uh, Jean had. That he could, that he he could read into uh, a person's uh, deep disquiet. Um, uh, there was a, everything everything he approached. He approached with ultimate tenderness, and I think he he didn't know the reasons, didn't know the reasons, but he knew that Henry was not the best of all possible places, and clearly he wasn't. He had written in one of his last books called uh, "At Harvard." About his Harvard experience, called Life Signs, had written about how that deeply competitive, achievement-oriented uh, world of Harvard was destructive of his soul. So he needed to find some place to go. So he was invited by uh, Jean to come to Trollybroeil, which he did, and he lived uh, there uh, and in a foyer with uh, his mother, Pauline, whom he came deeply to love. And then after he, had, he, he left there, um, he was uh, invited to go to Daybreak. Uh, Sister Sue Mossdollar, a very important figure, the literary executor of the Nauan estate, and a very close friend of Henry Nauan's, of, of Jean Vanier as well. She uh, was the head of Daybreak, and he came, or she was um, a very important figure at Daybreak anyway. She came, uh, she was instrumental in, in helping transition Henry from. The Harvard and then subsequently Trolley Broil to the new drain um, experience at the large community daybreak in in uh, Richmond Hill in Ontario, and to the last ten years of henry's life was a complete turnaround again, here you have somebody who you know who had taught at Notre Dame and then was tenured at Yale and then had taught at Harvard and had taught at Boston College and taught at Regis College at the University of Toronto and so he, he you know he was and it was, was like Vanier, a prolific writer, 39 books. And so um, he moved into a world utterly unlike, totally unlike the Academy. And he he was a man of words, and now he was living with people who could barely speak words. He moved from a situation where he was very much alone doing his private work to a situation where he was on regular show working with the community, helping to dress, bathe, uh, clean up, and feed Adam Arnett, the most broken person in that community. So Jean's, Jean gave him a uh, lifeline. He, he gave Henry a lifeline, which saved him, I think, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. So the last 10 years of Henry's life was not spent in the academy. It was spent living in the kind of community that uh, Jean Ved lived in.
1: Wow.
2: Sounds like a precursor to uh, our life in heaven.
3: Well, you know, I mean, they were uh, remarkable men. I, um, I did a series, um, well, I wrote a book on, on Henry Nowen called Genius, Born of Anguish, but it was also a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation ideas series. And, and at the end of the series, that I, I gave the last word to Jean Vanier, and I said to him, what would be Henry Nowen's legacy? And and said, well, he doesn't really like to talk about legacy. He wants to talk about fecundity because that's the kind of thing that Henry would talk about. The fertility of one's life is only fully realized in one's death. And so he said, I see Henry as part of a movement in humanity to a greater harmony, to a greater peace, trying to find the commonalities that make us deeply human. I think that what he said of uh, Henry and applies equally well to himself.
1: Well, thank you so much for all of this. It was really interesting to hear you talk about it, Michael, and there's lots of stuff to chew on for sure. If people have feedback, they can give it to us over email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. They can also go onto Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. I do want to remind everyone that this show is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today who get our magazine or pay for our content online, and we're very appreciative of you and we are currently in our May issue right now. People just finished the June issue, so I'm sure we'll be chatting about that soon. Mark, I'm curious if there's anything that kind of sat with you or stuck out with you from this most recent issue.
2: Well, one of the articles that came unsolicited to me uh, was on uh, small groups. And over the years, we've heard many times that a uh, small group, church small groups should be more like uh, the small groups we find in Alcoholics Anonymous, which tend to be very gritty, very honest, very vulnerable. I've been to a few of those meetings, especially with my brother who attended them. And they are, they are of a different, they are a different order of small group, but authentic in ways that makes you think authentic should be capitalized. And so there's been many people saying, why can't church small groups be more like that? Because often they end up being uh, superficially spiritual or people don't really have an opportunity to get, really get to know one another. And this, this writer, uh, this professor wrote on what he saw the church can and cannot learn from, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought it was very insightful and I will not ruin the ending, which is the most interesting part of the whole piece. Uh, so we won't have a spoiler alert, but I encourage people to read that. It's a, it's a very thoughtful, insightful, and in, a, in its own way, vulnerable discussion.
1: It's also another look at community and loneliness, which is something that
2: we've just Mm -hmm. kind of
1: been exploring a little bit just now. The piece is called Small Groups Anonymous by Kent Dunnington. And yeah, it says why the best church small groups might take their cues from the 12 steps. So I recommend that you read that one. And obviously to do so, you have to become a subscriber, which I also recommend please go to orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moment, and everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Mark, that's you.
2: I will say just getting my bike out and tuning it up and making sure all the gears work and then getting out on the road and on the trail. We were very fortunate in the suburbs of Glen Ellen. And Wheaton and this DuPage County have a tremendous bike trail system uh, that has been laid over previous uh, railroad tracks. So you can pretty much go anywhere in this whole county, ninety percent of which on these trails.
1: Which trail do you take to work?
2: So I actually don't know the name of it, but it goes. It actually starts pretty close to my house, and then I can take it all the way to the center of Wheaton, and then I can take suburban streets here. But anyway, just the. you know, it's just very simple pleasures of the wind blowing in your face and the sun on your back and just being outside the, the, you know, the deal with the suburban lifestyles, you end up, you're in a, a climate controlled house. You step out of your house for just a couple seconds and you're in a climate controlled car and you step out of your car for a couple seconds and you're in a climate controlled office and you just don't experience the world as God created it. And so one of the things biking does for me is, is that.
1: Mark has yet to take me up on the offer of biking during the winter, so I'll just replay him his comments in a couple months. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and people can read your newsletter, The Galley Report, on Fridays. Yeah,
2: you can subscribe to that by going to christianitytoday.com slash Report. I link to articles I happen to find interesting and make comments about them, and uh, you might want to check it out. And yeah. the, the name is Galley, G-A-L-L-I, Report.
1: Awesome. All right, Michael. We would love to hear about a highlight of your life from the past week.
3: Oh wow! Talking to you
1: two—that is very flattering, <laughs> but does not count.
3: Right, listen, listen, short of the Perusia. That's been the highlight of my life this week. All right. Okay, you can't well, get any better than that, guys. Well, I know how Alrighty. you.
2: I, I know what you mean, and uh, you know if I've written a book and someone actually wants to talk to me about the contents of the book, that is a delight, isn't it?
3: It is a delight. It absolutely is a delight, and it was a pleasure being on the podcast with you.
1: We're glad you could join. How long have you been at Sacred Heart University?
3: About nine years. I was a president of another couple of universities. I'm a senior academic, and so now i I just spend a good deal of time doing research, writing books. Um, uh, giving public lectures and uh, not having to worry about uh, a number of the other things I had to worry about when I was in senior administration, so it's uh, quite a quite a pleasant thing to do.
1: And how do you? And find that
3: I'm I'm here in in um, in Connecticut during the week, and on the weekends I'm home with my wife in Guelph, Ontario, which is a city just about an hour west of Toronto.
1: I have to be honest that when I first heard of Guelph, it immediately became my my favorite name for the name of a city.
3: <laughs> it is a wonderful name for a city, and it's a wonderful city. It has a great university, uh, and it also has a wonderful internationally known Jesuit retreat house called Loyola um, on beautiful hundreds and hundreds of acres of land and river and everything else. Uh, it's um, it's a small city with a gorgeous river that runs right through the middle of it and uh, beautiful wetlands and uh, just very well preserved. It's called the Royal City of Guelph, because at one point, I guess it was in the 1930s, uh, King Edward Eighth or Cape to visit the city, I think it was Edward the it may have been Edward VII, at the turn of the century, I'm not quite sure, but it ended up with the kit uh, of the Royal. So it's the Royal City of Guelph.
1: And can you remind everyone of your books on Vanier and Nowen?
3: Yeah, the book on Vanier is called uh, Jean Vanier, Logician of the Heart. And there are two books on on Nowen, one uh, called Genius Born of Anguish, and the new one, which just came out last week. That's one of the reasons why I'm so joyful. And it's called Impressively Free, and it's a study of Henry Nowen as the uh, ideal model for a Reformed priesthood, which we certainly in the Catholic Church need right now. So uh, that book just came out this week, and... um, I have several books out on Merton, one called Heretic Blood, The Spiritual Geography of Thomas Merton, one called Thomas Merton, Faithful Visionary, and then one, which is my favorite in many ways, called The Unquiet Monk, uh, The Spiritual Quest of Thomas Merton. So there's lots of stuff out there.
1: Thank you so much for sharing all of that.
3: It's my pleasure. I enjoyed talking to both of you.
1: All right. My precious moment this week, I believe, is I am just starting to read book, so I don't know if it can necessarily be a precious moment because I'm not that far into it, by Hannah Arendt, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Oh, yeah. Did you read it?
2: I know the book and I know the name, yeah. I don't, I mean, I know the book title. I've not read it myself.
1: So the book actually started off with like a 30-page introduction by Samantha Powers, who was, I believe, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under Obama. And that was interesting to just kind of get her... Take an analysis of this, but I listened to a podcast last year with um, an academic who had studied a lot of Arend's writings and was really convicted and thought a lot about it. It was it's just very interesting. Arend was born and raised in Germany and was a very successful intellectual there. And then when it became clear that um, Germany was no longer going to be safe, ended up moving to France for. 16 years where she was basically a stateless person and then came to the United States after that. And she wrote this book, the origins of totalitarianism in her fifth language.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: (laughs) I was like, how could you write a 300 page book in a language that you learned about five years before that on this subject? And the book is talking about imperialism, fascism, and communism, I want to say. The part about Stalin, though, was something that she just like tacked on at the end as she began to see all the stuff that Stalin was doing, yeah. which, again, yeah. that was part of the stuff that I learned in the intro, so to just be able to tack on another other treaties on that was pretty impressive. So anyway, I when I heard this interview with um, the historian about her work last year, it felt like there was a ton of resonance um, to what's going on right now because it seems like her writing makes connections between big political ideas and also ones that we continue to talk about on the show about like loneliness and a sense of alienation and some of the really just challenging things about modern life. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how she brings those connections together. And there's way more books if I want to keep reading about um, reading her stuff after this. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at MEPAYNL. That's it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen Thank you everyone who reviews the show. We truly appreciate that. You can do that on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done that already. We are also available not only on Apple Podcasts, but basically wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Stitcher and SoundCloud. This podcast is produced by myself and Cray Allred. The music is by Sweeps. We will see you all next week. Bye.